Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. H is for John Hutchinson. Also known as Hutch, born in Scarborough, I think, date unknown. Hutch. Well, well, Hutch, we think it's maybe late 43, early 44. <laughs> oh, international man of mystery. I'm sure if we had got in touch with him, he'd tell us. He would. Oh, we don't want to I'll do any him. research, Bob, do we? Flipping act. I'll ask him. So his first band was a Dave Kirby Five who changed the name to the wholly inappropriate Tennessean. So, bored with the scene in his hometown, he absconded to Gothenburg, Sweden in the mid-60s, where he gained some notoriety, being as he was, one of the few jobbing English rock and rollers on the scene. And he also looked out upon arrival when he found a band in need of a guitarist and his migration was soon to be emulated by his teammates from the Tennesseans, who were still inappropriately named. Absolutely. Whilst there, he joined the even more inappropriately named Apaches. Yes. Uh, on a trip home in 66, Hutch, as he was known, went to London to the legendary Marquee Club, casually asked the manager Jack Barry there if he knew of any bands who needed a guitar player. He said he did, and to call this number. What so, are the chances? I know, so he did exactly that, and he got through to a chap called Spike, almost <laughs> inevitably, uh, who turned out to be the road manager for a character called David Bowie, who oh. was actually a bloke called David Davy Jones, sure. as we know, who had recently changed his name and was looking for a backing band. So the following Saturday, 10am, he was back to the marquee, guitar in hand for his audition with Bowie, who was accompanied by his then-manager, Ralph Horton. And it was whilst bashing out some riffs on his Telecaster, he was instructed from a voice at the back, Play some Bo Diddley! <laughs> And having been playing Bo Diddley songs constantly for the last couple of years, he did it well. Ah, OK. Turns out the instructions were coming from Bowie himself at the back of the hall. At the end of the audition, he was told he'd passed. He was in, which surprised him more than a little, because also at the audition, amazingly, was a player who had been an original member of uh, Them, which was Van Morrison's R&B outfit. Well, certainly. Okay. Rehearsal started immediately at uh, as a marquee residency was about to begin for the band. Bowie told Hutch he was also looking for a Hammond organ player. As luck would have it, there's a lot of luck would have it yeah, going absolutely. on here, isn't there? Uh, Hutch knew one, uh, Derek Chow Boys, who was a fellow member of the inappropriately named Tennesseans. He was contacted, which wasn't easy at the time. You remember, you know, this is going back to 66, as uh, Chow lived at home with his mum, didn't have a phone. Anyway, he did get, manage to get hold of him in the end. And Julie uh, sort of, you know, upped sticks, headed to London, joined his mate. Fabulous. So they were joined by a drummer John Ego Eager and bassist Derek Deck Fernley, mm. and they became Bowie's backing band, The Buzz. 
The band's first single was Do Anything You Say, released on the 1st of April 1966. As we know, previously mentioned, failed to chart, see Tony Hatch. The band's second release uh, was to see the problems begin already. It didn't take long, did it? 19th of August, 66, I Dig Everything, was released again, see Tony Hatch. Much to uh, Hutch's chagrin, Hatch wasn't convinced of the merits of the musicians in the buzz and called in some session players instead, so Hutch quit the buzz, who struggled on in a bit of a hand-to-mouth kind of way for some time, didn't they? But not for long. That's right, yeah. So Hutch went off again... He went off travelling to Canada, but when he returned to London on the 24th of October 1968, he wrote to Bowie, only to find out that he was living with his girlfriend, a lady called Hermione Farthingale, who was also in a folk band with a guy called Tony Hill, called Mm. Turquoise, but turns out Tony Hill had just scarpered, and as luck would have it, (laughs) they needed a guitarist. Yeah, I was a completely different guitar player into playing acoustic and listening to Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell, this is Hutch, and a lot of good Canadian songwriters, which suited Bowie's new direction, wasn't it? And the new band rose from the ashes from Turquoise called Feathers. Yeah, they rehearsed at 22 Clairville Grove, Sunday the 17th of November, Feathers' first gig. It was actually misbilled as turquoise and he was at the country club in Hampstead they were supporting John Heisman's Coliseum also on the bill the third year band and Doris Henderson and the band were paid six quid oh not bad really the show consisted of occasional dance sequences performed by Farthingale as well as mixed media presentation we've been here before haven't we we're talking about poetry and mime of course with the backing tapes handled or switched on by Hutch right okay at the risk of being a bit of a gooseberry because obviously Bowie and Hermione are very very much in love at this point aren't they absolutely and they're, but they they needed him, and they so did. that was it. Yeah, but yeah. You, you do have to wonder, don't you? I mean, really, it's because I mean, it also it also transpires later on as well when Bowie meets Angie and they fall desperately mm. in love, and he's always away with the fairies or yeah. away with Angie, yeah. <laughs> and everybody else is like, "All right, he's off again." Yeah. So, so we fast forward now to the twenty seventh of November. Uh, previously recorded with Tony Hill, the song Chingaling was re-recorded by Feathers. They continued to gig, but here we go, first of February nineteen sixty nine, Hermione. Scarper's off to make the film Song of Norway, leaving Bowie heartbroken and with his mate Hutch. Now, there's a lot of H's cross-pollinating here. Mm. So you've got Tony Hatch and you've got Hutch and you've got Hermione Farthingale all under the letter H. So um, you, you can get a little bit repetitive. And Ralph Horton as well. Uh, oh, of course. Forget. Yeah, OK. So uh, they set about forming a folk duo once Hermione had gone, mm. OK, uh, based on Simon Garfunkel. And Hutch helps Bowie craft a new song about the current space mission. The song is obviously Space Oddity. Yeah. The 11th of March, 1969... The duo play the University of Surrey, part of the Guildford Arts Festival. Now, this is <laughs> something else. This is from any day now, right? Okay, Kevin Cansbrook. For the first time, David uses Hutch as a straight man for his impromptu comedy routine. Oh, no. for a, a time machine. <laughs> oh, He's tried his hand at, you know, at various things, but I didn't know he tried stand-up as well. <laughs> it's just bizarre, isn't it? He is literally trying everything. It's learning whether, curve whether it for me. sticks or not. So, Bowie's introduced him thus. Uh, this is Hutch. He's my friend. I found him in the classical ads in Time Out under microbiotics. I wonder how that went down for the crowd. <laughs> anyway, have you told you the one about... No. <laughs> more wise, is it? Uh, 18th of March now, Atlantic Records boss Armour Ertigan, this must have been such a thrill for Bowie at the time, mm. uh, expresses interest in uh, David and Hutch's songs, but this came to nothing. Uh, the duo do the rounds of the folk clubs in the meantime, performing, amongst other things, Space Oddity, of course you would, with Hutch on guitar and Bowie on stylophone. Uh, but it kind of all stalls as Bowie starts performing solo stuff more and more mm. as these go on, OK? Uh, this is, of course, with manager Ken Pitt's blessing. Uh, Hutch reckoned that Pitt wasn't too keen on him in the first place. And he's looking towards his next move, of course. So you've got the Space Oddity album, or as it was originally called, David Bowie. 
Yeah, and it, and yeah, it just fizzles out between the two, it doesn't does. it? It's just one of those things. He gets distracted. So we have to jump ahead now to Friday, the 19th of January, 1973. Mm. Okay, so some leap. Uh, so Hutch sees an interview with Bowie in Melody Maker where he says he's looking for a new guitarist to team up with Ronson to allow him more freedom on stage. So he'd have the acoustic guitar, yeah, yeah. And Hutch applies for the job and gets it. And Hutch is famously the musician who started the final song on the Aladdin Saint tour, which is Rock and Roll Suicide. Yeah. I mean, you know, he would be famous for it being just that as well. But it was Hutch that Bowie gave the instruction to hold off starting the song until he got the nod. Now, the nod being the sign that he gave once he dropped the bombshell at the end of the farewell show about the last gig of the tour, last show yeah, we'll ever do. Course. And then he, he told everybody, everybody was aghast. And then, yeah, the, uh, the waiting Hutch had to just sit there, wait for Bowie to give him the eye, and then he could start Rock and Roll Suicide and put it all to bed. Um, and he wondered what was going on. He's thinking, why is yeah, he saying this Yeah, of course he didn't me? know, of course. Yeah. yeah, there is, we should mention, all of this is documented in a book uh, by, well, Hutch's book called Bowie and Hutch, which comes with the following ringing endorsement here, Mark. Hutch's story is a fabulous journey that takes him from hometown Scarborough to the Marquee Club in London 1966 to the Hammersmith Odeon Farewell Concert in 1973 via Tokyo, New York and Los Angeles from a buzz around London to worldwide hysteria in the company of David Bowie. Jealous, me, and that's from Mark Riley on the back. God, I'm good. Oh, hey. Um, now, I was. Uh, I know you've talked to Hutch as well. In, ooh, we're going back 2014 now. I was talking to Hutch about this book and he was very forthcoming with everything, talking about how he met Bowie and you know the proto Simon and Garfunkel and all the rest of it. But he's um, just kind of. I did ask him at one point. He said, "You know, Bowie imagined you as an English Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, how seriously do you think he kind of took that idea?" And he said, "I, I had mixed feelings that, that was coming up because after Hermione had left, Feathers had finished, and it just became David and I. And it was very close to the time when I realised I'd probably have to go back up north and get a proper job. Ooh. Uh, we didn't have enough gigs to keep us going. I think the timing was all wrong. David really wanted to do that duo thing. I was probably very." disappointed in me having to leave when I left he basically asked me if I'd come back after I got the family settled but I just couldn't do it yeah he continues I felt a little uncomfortable with it because of the gulf between our different inputs David wrote all the songs and in my eyes he was the main man and I guess I was always the accompanying musician though I was quite happy with that role yeah and then I'd asked him at one point, you know, is there any real, you know, could you put your finger on one defining characteristic about Bowie that really struck you even back in, that, in those days? He said, what it was, what really struck me was he didn't really focus on anything else but music. He said this meant everything to him. Being a performer and having a band was everything, whereas most people, including me, were always thinking if the money didn't last much longer, I could always go back to my day job. I don't think David ever thought like that. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. H is for Hermione Farthingale. Born Hermione Dennis, a solicitor's daughter from Edenbridge in Kent. She studied classical ballet. But we actually met her on the set of the BBC TV drama The Pistol Shot in January 68. Farthingale had been employed by the BBC while Bowie was there, appearing as part of Lindsay Kemp's dance troupe. Worth mentioning the detail here, Bowie wearing satin breeches and a powdered wig. Nice. Uh, the Pistol Shot was broadcast eventually on 20th of May 1968. Yeah, so afterwards Bowie and Hermione walked off together towards Shepherd's Bush tube station, <laughs> aye aye, much to the dismay of 
Kemp, apparently. <laughs> aye, aye. In March 1968, Bowie introduced her to Kemp Hit after the first night performance of uh, Perot in Turquoise at the Mercury Theatre in London. Incidentally, in Kevin Can's Any Day Now, there's a great shot of Mark Boland and Steve Peregrinto mm. in Hermione's back garden that very summer. Yeah, Mark Boland wearing a yellow top. So in August 68, Bowie and Hermione move in together. They took a small attic room at 22 Clareville Grove in South Kensington and the room became the base for Turquoise, featuring Bowie, Hermione and Tony Hill, who had formerly been in The Misunderstood. Right, yeah. Uh, Bowie and Hermione painted the room Turquoise too. Oh, how nice to fit in with the whole vibe of the band and also the Buddhist philosophy. Inevitably. So the three of them worked on an acoustic uh, guitar song, uh, particularly uh, Chingaling, uh, and another was Jack Brell's Amsterdam. Mm. Turquoise played an all-night benefit at the Neighbourhood Service, a community organisation at the Roundhouse in September 1968, headlined by The Scaffold, and Pete Brown's Battered Ornaments. But it turned out to be a pivotal night for them. Not only was it Bowie's first show at the Roundhouse, a huge venue and uh, so important at that particular time, but Angela Barnett was in the audience with a friend Calvin Mark Lee, who was the American A&R man with Mercury Records. The plot thickens. Absolutely. So Turquoise recorded a couple of tunes at Trident in uh, October 68, but Tony Hill left soon after, so John Hutchinson came in to replace him. Hutch, of course. They decided to change the name to Feathers. Feathers supported Coliseum at the Country Club in Hampstead in November with all the mixed media stuff that we've already discussed. Yeah. In early December, they were featured in the Times newspaper who explained that they were uh, they performed their own rather high-class brand of poetry, mime, folk song and dance. Dangle that carrot. No sign of comedy in there. (laughs) (laughs) Or was there? Uh, Farthingale was involved in the filming of Love You Till Tuesday's promo video on Hampstead Heath in January 1969. A few days later, filming was moved to Clarence Studios in Greenwich, where Farthingale, Bowie and Hutch are all seen performing Sell Me A Coat and Chingaling. Now, here's where it gets a bit sad here, Mark. So, on the morning of filming, Bowie and Farthingale were overheard arguing in the dressing room. It turns out that she was breaking up with him. Ken Pitt said later he believe they were through already even before they started filming uh, Love You Till Tuesday but she just carried on as a bit of a favour Right, I mean, I think he carried a torch for Bowie anyway, Ken Pitt, didn't he? He did, he so, certainly did. So I think maybe, maybe he was rubbing his hands together <laughs> thinking, go on, love, be gone. <laughs> on your bike, go on. <laughs> so Bowie didn't completely give up on her, though. Why would he? He loved her. So he addressed her in song over the next 12 months, most famously on Letter to Hermione, yeah. uh, plus a, an occasional dream, and maybe even unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed. Uh, but there, the lyrics being, I care for no one else but you. I tear my soul to cease the pain. I think maybe you feel the same what can we do i'm not quite sure what we're supposed to do so i've been writing just for you it's unusual bowie isn't it to be that sort of nakedly confessional he's not that kind of a songwriter generally but no. he's pouring it all out here it's i mean it's more often than not in character isn't yeah, it that's of what course. we know so i mean he was hurting he certainly was hurting so he said in 69 on the release of the album that featured the letter to hermione he said i'd written her a letter and then decided not to post it so letter to hermione is what i wish i'd said i was in love with her and it took me months to get over it of course she'd fallen in love with a dancer a guy called Stephen reinhardt while on location doing song of norway which came out 1970. Right, which probably didn't um, please David Bowie too much. Not at all. And he said in 1970, I was madly in love with her, but the gigs got in the way. That's the way to handle it. Yeah, he said, uh, yeah, Farthingale then appeared in various films, Oh, What a Lovely War, Dancing Shoes, Song of Norway, Tales of Hoffman and The Great Waltz. So there's lots of conjecture about what 
actually happened to Hermione yeah. after all this, you know. And uh, it's believed that she and Bowie met again briefly in 1972 or 1973, but nobody really knows. Mm. And it gets a bit fanciful. So one report has her mapping uncharted rivers in the Amazon with her anthropologist boyfriend. Another one says she moved to Papua New Guinea. Right. right? Uh, Hermione said of Bowie, meanwhile, that even back in those days, he had a very strong sense of destiny. He'd draw himself. This is great. He'd envisage himself in a drawing in the future. So an insight into how Bowie has already sort of had this little master plan in his head about how he was, you know, going to project himself later as, as Ziggy and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, back to Hermione. Indeed, Bob. So in 2016, a national newspaper published a story saying that the Traster, so Hermione Frankel, was now living in Bristol and working as a Pilates teacher. Yeah. That's, that's a bit more believable. Absolutely, absolutely. Worth mentioning too, of course, that Bowie wears a T-shirt in the video for Where Are We Now? This is in 2013, lest mm. you forget, that says Song of Norway on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, now, I was lucky enough to interview Hermione in 2012 and she talked about when they met on the pistol shot I said we had an instant rapport, fell totally in love and became inseparable. Right, OK. I mean, I, what I've, I have mentioned, and it's just rubbing, rubbing salt in everybody's wound, but on the, uh, the preview that I went to um, with um, Mark Adams and Nigel Reeve from EMI yeah. uh, for the Davy Bowie is at the V&A. So it was the night before it opened, mm. and there was a few people there, and Ken Pitt was there, ah. and Kevin Cam was there, but also was Hermione Farthingale, which was a real kind of a strange buzz for yeah. me, pardon the pun. Uh, you know, you're just thinking, oh, that is Hermione. Well, she's like, like this mythic figure in, in yeah. Bowie law, and the fact that nobody knew what happened to her, it just makes her all the more attractive. And the it? fact that she'd been up the Amazon. <laughs> well, we'll find out in a minute because I asked her about that. Oh, <laughs> dangle that carrot again, Bob. Well, let's get onto it, shall we? So talking about Bowie having this great strong sense of destiny and all the rest of it. He said uh, he was already a star to anybody who knew him and he could transport you by singing When I Live My Dream, sitting on the edge of a stage in Poirot in Turquoise. On the end of their relationship, she said, I was a dancer trained at ballet school since the age of 12 and needed to have my career. I'd accepted Song of Norway as a stepping stone, but it meant six months on location. The reality of separation and the parting of paths was starting to impinge. But by the end of filming time, I'd already started rehearsals and the chasm widened. It was a painful time. Yeah, never mind all that, though, Matt. Did she really go... The get, Amazon. Get to Let's it, Let's get Bob. to it. So I asked her. I said, I have married, raised children and have grandchildren. I did spend six years in New Guinea, but not as a cartographer, as has been reported. I've exhibited as a painter and retrained as a physical therapist and danced quite a lot, but not ballet. And I have never mapped the rivers of South America. So there you have it. <laughs> Conclusive proof. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. H is also for Ralph Horton. So uh, Bowie had been recording with producer Shel Talmy in 1965, but was dissatisfied with the working relationship. They argued a lot, apparently. Mm. So Bowie took matters into his own hands and went to visit agent Terry King on Denmark Street in London. And it was there that he met one of King's employees, Ralph Horton, who was then the road manager for the Moody Blues. And before that, Horton had been looking after Denny Lane and the diplomats in Birmingham. Yeah, OK. So Horton's first job was to book Bowie, who was then, of course, still going by his birth name, David Jones and the lower third into the Pavilion Ballroom in Bournemouth, and then the Ventnor Winter Gardens on the Isle of Wight. And he got them some warm-up gigs at the Marquee at the same time. He was officially taken on as Bowie's manager, and of course that of the lower third, on the 3rd of July 1965, after Bowie decided he was better off without Leslie Conn. Right. Yeah, we've covered already. Mm. Uh, Bowie decided to audition for Horton in the upstairs room of a pub on Tottenham Court Road. And we have done already the con artist joke, haven't we? have we? done that yeah, gag. Twice, twice, I think. I think. Yeah. Three times now. So, interestingly, Horton shot film footage of the band when they played the Pavilion Ballroom in Bournemouth a week later, but that's never seen the light of day. That's intriguing, isn't it? Whoa, oh, yeah, that'd be, uh, that'd be nice to see. So, Bowie supposedly started wearing mod clothes from Carnaby Street on the advice of Horton, who said that the band would do better if they adopted cutting-edge fashion. And Bowie even got his hair cut, too, with a nice, neat side party. Yeah, that's right. In September that year, Horton uh, secured a publishing deal with Sparta Music who signed him up for a year Sparta's owner a guy called Hal Shaper remembered Horton as being very nice and persuasive and fully behind Bowie you can't doubt that actually when, he, when this story progressed but Horton mm. was really throwing everything into this he was so however so this is where Horton already starts to lose his grip here he was short of cash and he wanted somebody with more experience of the music business to help him out with Bowie so in September 65 he went to visit Ken Pitt at his office in Mayfair to see if he'd be interested in being co-manager Okay, so we've talked about Pitt before, but also at this time he was looking after Manfred Mann and Crispian St. Peter's, Mm. and Horton was advised by Pitt to change... Bowie's name, especially with Davy Jones doing so well on Broadway as the Artful Dodger in the production of Oliver, and then, of course, well, further on with the monkeys. Yeah. Uh, he, he told him that he needed to change it. Good advice. So two days after the initial meeting, on the 17th of September 1965, to be exact, Horton wrote to Pitt, and he said, I've taken the liberty of writing to you and advising you that I've now changed Davy's name to David Bowie. Ooh. A major moment, of course. And uh, despite it sounding like Horton was claiming credit, Davy Bowie he did come up with the name himself after Jim Bowie, which we've done under B. Yeah, we should stress that, shouldn't we? You know, Bowie was behind that in the first place. Uh, Horton went on to say that he would welcome any suggestions about Bowie's career and he'd send him a copy, of the, a copy of the Lower Third single when they came in. The first gig as David Bowie in the Lower Third took place at the 100 Club in September 65. Ominously, though, and here we go, for the rest of the band, within a couple of months, Horton had dropped the lower third from the billing at gigs, implying, again, that Bowie is a solo artist. Yeah, that's just a a very recurring theme, isn't it? Okay, so uh, where are we up to now? Horton even got a £1,500 loan from the head of an industrial heating company, so, (laughs) yeah, Bob, uh, Petre, to keep Bowie's career going. In November 1965, Bowie and Horton signed a three-year management contract witnessed by uh, Bowie's dad, and Horton's next job was to introduce Bowie to 
Tony Hatch. Ah, See Tony Hatch. Covered. Lower third were understandably miffed at being pushed out by Horton. Things came to a head after a gig in Paris in January 66 when Horton booked Bowie on a flight home with him while the others were left to travel back to London in their converted ambulance. Mm. There is a picture of that ambulance, isn't it? And it doesn't look like the greatest vehicle on earth. Uh, incidentally, this was Bowie's first time ever on a plane. Ah, right. Okay. Then he organised a launch party for Bowie's fourth single, Can't Help Thinking About Me, on the 6th of January 1966, the day before you were born, Bob. Yeah. At the Gatey Bar near Hyde Park. And uh, we've mentioned this. John Lennon's dad was there and all that. So less than two weeks after the single came out, however, the lower third quit right before a gig at the Brommel Club in Bromley. So it was a big homecoming for Bowie, this, when Horton told the band they wouldn't be getting a fee at all because he needed the money to cover travel expenses. Mm. This isn't on, is it? At the same time, it's thought that Horton helped, can't help thinking about me, rise to number 34 in Melody Maker's chart with a bit of payola. 250 quid, I believe, is the figure floating really? about. Yeah. That's quite a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Right. Horton immediately placed an ad after the lower third had quit. He immediately placed an ad in Melody Maker for musicians to form a new backup band for Bowie. Of course, this led to the formation of the buzz. That in, in itself problematic. But anyway, yeah. the band seemed to like Horton, particularly his sense of humour. Deck Fernie later said, Ralph could be very funny. He amused me. The way he took people off and minced around. <laughs> right, OK. Well, okay. It's not That's the impression a... you get, is it, really? No. Uh, at the same time, there were money problems, as we've just mentioned. Apparently Horton would never answer the door to his Warwick Square flat in case it was a bailiff's coming to take his stuff away. This is desperate stuff. So he couldn't be faulted for effort though, as he mentioned. Even took to driving the band's tour bus, another converted ambulance. The bus was always running out of petrol apparently and the steering alignment was perpetually wonky. Uh, It was hardly a magnet for uh, adoring fans either. Many of the rival band's tour buses would be full of like lipstick messages you know, from girls scrawled all over. Bowie's van had only one Aimed at bassist Deck Fernley. Call me on Fridays because my mum's out. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so in April 1966, Horton again went to visit Ken Pitt in Mayfair to see if he'd be interested in co-management deal. Ooh, Desperate. He, he won't give up, will he? Horton tells him that he has big plans for Davy Bowie, starting with a Sunday afternoon residency at the Marquee, billed as a Bowie showboat, and Pitt agreed to go along. Yeah, now also Horton had approached Simon Napier-Bell, who was then managing the Yardbirds at that time, see if he'd be interested in co-managing Bowie, but he said he wasn't interested. And of course, you've got to remember here, a few months after that, Napier Bell took on Mark Bolan, brought him into John's children. It would have been interesting if he had both Bolan and Bowie on yeah. his books because their, their rivalry was already starting to bubble, wasn't it? Yeah. And so uh, Pitt first saw Bowie at the Bowie Showboat on the 17th of April, 1966, and he was actually bowled over. He thought yeah. he was absolutely brilliant. And he met up with Horton and Bowie afterwards and signed the co-management deal. Well done, Raoul! Yeah, absolutely. Now, here's the thing. So apparently Horton would actively discourage Bowie from doing a lot of these sort of theatrical performance ideas that he had. So already he's starting to do these sort of, well, you know, what would be multimedia things now. Right. But Horton saying, no, no, just be the standard front man. This is what I want you. So he just wanted him to be this conventional guy out front singing the songs. He picked the wrong man there yeah. then, didn't he? Fernley, Deck Fernley said later that the stage act that Bowie was using around this time really sort of ended up, you know, obviously far more uh, you know, convoluted, ended up being Ziggy. But it wasn't surprising. When he saw Ziggy, that wasn't a surprise to him. Right, OK. And Bowie even started his own fan club at this point. <laughs> You know, it was run by Shirley Wilson from Bromley, but he started it. Mm. Uh, and one of the club secretaries described in the promo literature as Caroline was, in fact, Horton, who answers mail and sends messages to fans. So he's really getting involved here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's rolling his sleeves up, bless him. <laughs> Horton's showboat idea still didn't work, though, so the marquee was only, at best, only ever half full, and he owed money to Pie Records for copies of Can't Help Thinking About Me, uh, and threatened with the bailiffs, he was saved by Ken Pitt, who helped him evade court action by paying 
paying off his outstanding debt, which is very good of him. Yeah, you know, I mean, the writing's on the wall, really. So in November 1966, Horton wrote to Pitt, and uh, whilst he was away in Australia, actually, he said, Ken, we are broke, with a capital B. It looks now as though I will go bankrupt. I wish you were here so we could discuss it. I bet he's glad he wasn't. Mm. A week later, the buzz are relieved of their duties halfway through recording sessions for the first album. Yeah, I mean, John Hutchinson later talked about Ralph Horton and and the buzz. said David was protected by uh, Ralph, who treated him like a precious piece of china and kept him apart kept him apart from me and the other guys in the band although we all drove to gigs together in an old ambulance funny because that's the way it went also with DeFries and David with the spiders yeah. on the on the final uh, Ziggy Aladdin Sane tour wasn't it in yeah. 1973 so in early December Horton negotiated a publishing deal with David Platts and Essex Music in which he has advanced 500 pounds mm. get in however Pitt had already been in touch with Platts and agreed an advance of £1,000. Get out. So they knocked Horton down to half price. Young businessman of the year. Certainly he wasn't. So here we go. This is quite intriguing. In early January 67, uh, Bowie went to see Pitt about cutting his ties completely with Horton. Uh, Pursued by creditors, Horton at this point, he visited Pitt a few days later saying he was giving up managing Bowie altogether and he was in a lot of debt because of it. Uh, Horton had been looking after Bowie for 18 months by then. So not much is known about what happened to him, but it is known that he left the music music business shortly afterwards and taking up a job in central London with the Royal Automobile Club. Not to be confused, Mark, with the RAC. Well, what is it to be confused with then? It's just like an old automobile club. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nailed it, Bob. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. H is also for Hours, the album. Hours, the album being Bowie's 21st studio album, released in October 1999. Bowie's final album for Virgin, a subsidiary of EMI, and his uh, customary groundbreaking way, it was the first full album by a major artist available to download over the internet. So the physical copies of the album didn't arrive until a fortnight later. I remember all this well. So the background, Bowie is actually in a good place at this moment in time. He'd set up Bowie Bonds, he'd resold his back catalogue to EMI for over $28 million. He was in the odd film. When I say odd film, I mean not that regularly, not odd. I know, I know. Particularly. <laughs> he was spending more time uh, with the company 21, which is his fine art company. And he met up again with Tony Visconti after an absence of 17 years. And he was in the mood to write songs. So look, looking good. Yeah, he certainly was. So uh, Bowie and our co-producer Reeves Gabrell started writing together in Bermuda at the end of 1998. Uh, Bowie said later, a lot of it was just straightforward songwriting, very little experimentation in the studio. Yeah, by the beginning of 1999, they moved on to Paris and started working on a soundtrack for the video game called Omicron, The Nomad Soul. And that was the impetus for what became ours. Yeah, they ended up recording demos in studios in Bermuda and Paris, as well as the hours stuff. Gabriel supposedly wrote three hours worth of instrumentals for the video game, hinting that they'd release them the following year. And Bowie was actually so busy during this time that he had to turn down production jobs with Marilyn Manson and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, okay. Uh, In the game, released by Edos Interactive a month after the album, Bowie played the role of Boz, while his wife Iman appeared as an incarnable who introduced virtual reincarnation. Around the same time, you got Bowie, Gabrels and the bass player Gail Ann Dorsey started performing as the Dreamers, who are a virtual band that played around Omicron City. This is very complicated, this stuff. It is. Uh, characters Hang in the on, game. I mean, I've only just got to grips with Crash Bandicoot and Defender. So oh, I know. Tell me it. about it. Uh, characters in the game could also buy a virtual album that they could listen to in their virtual apartment. So it's all 
constricting virtuals here. Leave it to the kids, mate. So Omicron, the Nomad Soul, included eight songs, all of them appearing on ours. And Bowie said about his work on the soundtrack, I moved right away from the stereotypical industrial game music sound. My priority is in writing music for Omicron was to give it an emotional subtext. It feels to me as though Reeves and I have achieved that. We both worked really close with Quantic Dream to come up with eight new songs for the game. Yeah, so the game also included a total of 34 instrumentals, 26 of which were by Gabrels and eight by Bowie and Gabrels. Only three tunes on ours weren't from Omicron, so it's really all pervading this, isn't yeah. it? Uh, if I'm Dreaming My Life, What's Really Happening and Brilliant Adventure, they're the only sort of originals. Yeah, so in the end, Bowie estimated that they had around 100 songs to choose from. Sure. We were recording most of the stuff ourselves and Reeves and I are playing most of the instruments and programming drums. I think you'll be surprised by the intimacy of it all. This is great, though. To promote the album, a cyber song contest was held on BowieNet, the idea being that people could write lyrics to an early instrumental version of what's really happening and the winning lyrics would end up on ours. What a great prize! Absolutely, and the contest was won by a guy called Alex Grant, whose prize also included a visit to Philip Glass's Looking Glass Studios to watch Bowie record the final vocal during a live webcast and Grant and a mate sang backing vocals on it. What a prize that is. Amazing. That's astounding. Uh, The album was originally due to be called The Dreamers after its closing track. Uh, This was down to Bowie being fascinated by dreams, which uh, he was doing interviews at the time. He said he saw them as an integral part of existence and a uh, a potent force in our lives. So there's loads of pre-publicity talk of dreams and parallel existences and ruminations on, you know, what if. Well, okay. So uh, generally ours is more laid back than outside and earthling and definitely less experimental. And it was a return to what you call classic songwriting. No doubt about that. Intriguingly, though, the lyrics feature various references to Bowie's 70s career. And he did say that he wanted to capture a kind of universal angst felt by many people of my age. You could say that I'm attempting to write songs for my generation. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, he'd be, what would he be? About 52 by this point. So he's, really, well, he's my age now. So he'd be, uh, you know, sort of going through this sort of middle-aged whatever, crisis in inverted commas. But, you know, writing the idea of writing songs for that generation really still sort of not often visited in rock music Certainly at all, not by it? Bowie not for a while, no. So he said a lot of the lyrics seem to be about Bowie, you know, coming to terms with middle age, where he's been, what he's done, uh, the future that he sang about in the early 70s, now a bit of a reality, of course, for him. And it's not as bad as he thought or he projected, you know? Right. Uh, Bowie said that ours was about reflecting back on a time that one's lived and how long one has left to live. Also, it's about shared experience. At the same time, you know, it stopped short of being overly contented. Bowie said, I don't own any happy albums and I wouldn't want to write one. <laughs> what a great line. Yeah. Yeah. What a great line. So the track list, Thursday's Child, this was the first single off the album, and Bowie said its title was prompted by the memory of the autobiography of the actress Eartha Kitt. Yeah. And no Cockney rhyme slang there. The book, also called Thursday's Child, <laughs> to be a favourite of his when he was 14 years old. She's got a great song called I Want to Be Evil. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Love it. Oh, great voice. Survive, another tune, one of three songs that Bowie had originally earmarked. Uh, actually, that Gabrell's had originally earmarked for his solo album. Right. This is sensible, isn't it? Would you do your solo album or go in with Bowie for hours. Right decision. Uh, Ulysses was supposed to be the uh, title of his solo album. The other two being We All Go Through and The Pretty Things Are Going to Hell. It's a great solo here. Very reminiscent of Mick Ronson. You know, real sort of early, you know, 72 Mick Ronson there. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. Um, uh, The Pretty Things Are Going to Hell. So here there's obviously a reference to his love of the pretty things, who we know he absolutely adored. But Mm. also The Stooges, Your Pretty Face Is Going to Hell, which is on Raw Power, which was mixed by Bowie. And a remixed version of this was earmarked for the soundtrack of the film Stigma 
Marta, whose score was overseen by Mark Garson and Billy Corgan. So there's Bowie connections all over the place. Absolutely. There's a lost video, too, apparently, unreleased, and Bowie meets four of his past selves in it. The Man Who Sold the World, Ziggy Stardust, The Thin White Duke, and The P.O. Clown, uh, as played by Lifeside Mannequin Puppets. Mm, which sort of partly revived later on for the next day, wasn't it, for the video for um, it was, you're for right. a single. Uh, seven, you know, classic singer-songwriter Bowie, a bit hunky-dory-ish, if, if anything. Yeah. yeah. What's really happening, as with The Pretty Things Are Going to Hell, a big blustery stomp rocker, uh, and it, it sticks out a little bit from the yeah. rest of the album, doesn't it? Yeah. And, uh, you know, so you've got Gabrels on there, you've got Mark Platty, who he returned to a few times, and Sterling Campbell, but mostly it was people that Bowie hadn't really worked with before, so quite experimental in that way. So you had uh, Mike uh, Levesque, who was a percussionist from Dave Navarro's band. Chris Haskett is in there on guitar, who played with Henry Rollins. Yeah, you've got Everett Bradley on percussion, just on seven. So let's have a look at the cover then, Bob. Mm. Uh, it's a great cover, really interesting, designed by Rex Ray, and it shows a cropped-haired Bowie persona from Earthling, exhausted and being cradled in the arms of the long-haired 1999 version of Bowie. And it also references La Piata, the Renaissance sculpture by Michelangelo, which shows the Virgin Mary cradling the body of Christ after the crucifixion. Very, very famous. And it's also been depicted in various paintings throughout the ages. So rather than dress up like Mary, however, Bowie said he didn't want to wear a dress. He's so contrary. <laughs> uh, so they turned it into a man. It can be visualised as life and death, past and present. Mm, OK. Uh, a number of initial copies featured a lenticular version of this, which gave it a 3D effect, which uh, I believe are startling to see okay reviews for the album I mean it's one of Bowie's less appreciated albums this isn't it real sort of low key maybe because of the nature of fairly straightforward songwriting I think well yeah I mean Outside was a really strange album and, and Earthling was a load of hand grenades going yeah, off wasn't it yeah. so yeah I, I suppose it was inevitable really okay we get to the reviews Rolling Stone called it an album that improves with each new hearing and uh, they also said it's further confirmation of Richard Pryor's observation that they call them old wise men because all them young wise men are dead Right. Uh, Select magazine compared Bowie. This is bizarre. Compared Bowie to a more highbrow version of Sting. What? I've been mean, talking about whoa, bad reviews here. There's a lack of urgency, they wrote, that suggests that the confessional is just another style Bowie's trying out for size. Right, okay. So, I mean, it's, it's, they're all over the place. There were some good ones, some yeah. bad ones, a few kind of like middling ones, you know, and you describe it as a Bowie's Marmite album. Yeah, you know. I the, hate Marmite, Bob. I love Marmite, you well, see. There yeah, you go. That's us polarising. There you go. Tony Visconti was keen, though, didn't he? He's out its beautiful lyrics about relationships and life experiences and like in the 60s he said a vast sonic panorama uh, charts first uh, Bowie studio album to miss the US top 40 since uh, Rise and Fall of Ziggy right. which is remarkable stalled at number 47 got to number 5 in the UK though and went silver which is well, about 60,000 copies The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock if you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode, I is for Iggy Pop. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.